Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati eamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 20b, Aeneid Book 4, Lines 659 to 705. In this episode, you will learn all the background context and you will see that rainbows make even the most tragic scene a little more adorable. Dixit, et os impressa toro, moriemur in altai, sed moriamur, ait, sic sic juat ire sub umbras, hauriat hunc oculis ignim crudelis abalto dardanus, et nostrae secum ferat omina mortis. Dixerat, at quillam midien ter talia ferro con lapsas piciunt comites, en semque cruore spumantem sparsasque manus, it clamorad alta atria, concusam bacatur fama per urbem, lamentis gemitu quet femineu lulatu tecta fremunt, resonat magnis plangoribus aeter, Non aliter quam si emissis ruat hostibus omnes car tag aut antiqua tiros flamae queferentes culmina per quominum volvantur perque deorum. Audiet ex animis trepido quexterita cursu, unguibus ora soror foedans et pectora pugnis per medios ruit, ac morientem nomine clamat. Hoc illud germana fuit, me fraude petebas, Hoc rogus iste mi hoc ignes auraeque parabant. Quid primum deserta querar, comitemne sororem spre visti moriens ea dem mad fatavocases. I dam bas ferro dolor at quea dora tuliset. His etiam struxi manibus patriosque vocavi, voce deos. Sic te ut posita crudelis abessem. Extincti te meque, soror, populumque patresque sidoneos, urbemque tuam. Date vulnera limpis abluet extremus si quis superhalitus erat ore legam. Sic fata gradus evaserat altos, semi animem que sinu germanam plexa foebat, cum gemitat quatros sicabat veste cruores. Illa graves aculos conata tolera rursus deficit, in fixum stridit sub pectora vulnus, ter se sa tolens cubito quad nixa levavit, ter revoluta torest oculis querantibus alto, quae siwit caelo lucen gemuit que reperta, tum iun omnipotens longum miserata dolorem deficiles quobitus irrim demisit Olimpo, Quae luctant animam nexosque resolveret artus. Nam quia nec fato merita nec morte peribat, sed miserante diem subitu qua quensa furore, non duili flavum pro serpina vertice crinem abstulerat, stigio que caput damnaverat orco. 
Ergo iris croqueis per caelum roscida penis, mille trahins varios adverso sole colores, devolat, et supra caput astitit, hunc ego diti sacrum usa ferro te quisto corpora salvo, sicait et dextra crinem secat, omnis et una dilapsus calor at quinventos vita recessit. She spoke, and having pressed her face on the bed, she says, We will die unavenged, but let us die. Thus, thus it pleases to go beneath the shades. Let the cruel Dardanian drink in with his eyes this fire from the deep, and let him carry with himself the omens of our death. She had spoken, and her companions catch sight of her collapsed in the middle of such things on her sword, and the sword foaming with blood and her splattered hands. Shouting goes to the high courtyards, Rumor runs rampant through the shaken city. The buildings roar with lamentations and moaning and feminine shrieking. The heavens resound with great wailing, not otherwise than if, with enemies let in, all Carthage or ancient Tyre were falling, and raging flames were rolling through the rooftops of men and of the gods. Her breathless sister heard, and, terrified, with a trembling run she rushes through the middle, disfiguring her face with her nails and her chest with blows, and she calls the dying one by name. Sister, was this that thing? Were you seeking me in deceit? Was this that pyre of yours, the fires and altars were preparing this for me? Having been deserted, what should I complain about first? Have you, dying, spurned your sister as a companion? You should have called me to the same fates. The same grief and the same hour should have carried us both off by the sword. I even built with these hands and I called the ancestral gods with my voice, so that, with you having been placed in this way, I would be apart from you, cruel one. You have destroyed yourself and me, sister, and the people and Sidonian fathers and your city. Give. I will wash her wounds with water, and if any last breath wanders above her, I will gather it with my mouth. Thus having spoken, she had passed beyond the high steps and was cradling her half-dead sister in her lap, having embraced her with a groan, and was drying the black blood with her robe. That one, having tried again to raise her heavy eyes, falls back. The wound pierced beneath her chest hissed. Lifting herself up three times and having leaned on her forearm, she raised herself. Three times she slipped back on the bed, and with wandering eyes sought light in the high heaven, and groaned it having been found. Then all-powerful Juno, having pitied her long grief and difficult passing, sent Iris down from Olympus, who would release her struggling spirit and her bound limbs. For since she was dying neither by fate nor a deserved death, but pitiful before her day and inflamed by sudden passion, Proserpina had not yet taken a blonde lock of hair from that one's head and had doomed her to Stygian Orcus. Therefore Iris, dewy with saffron feathers, through the sky, and drawing a thousand various colors with the sun facing her, flies down and stood above her head. I, having been ordered, take this sacred thing for Dis, and I release you from that body of yours. Thus she speaks, and she cuts the lock with her right hand, and together all heat departed and her life withdrew into the winds. Last time, Dido and Aeneas traded speeches with each other. From there, the AP selection skips around 300 lines, in which Dido yells at him one final time and locks herself in her room. Aeneas, although he wants to comfort her, goes back to his ships and gets ready to leave. Dido watches them making preparations and talks to her sister Anna, begging her to try to talk to Aeneas and convince him to stay a little longer. But Aeneas is fixed in his purpose, and as the text says, tears fell uselessly. 
It is here that the third instance of Ot Regina occurs, transitioning us into Act 3 of the tragedy where Dido has resolved to die. She has some bad dreams and sees some ill omens, and then approaches her sister Anna and says that she has found a way to either get Aeneas back or end her feelings for him. That she has heard of a sorceress who has a magic ritual that can undo love and destroy her memories of Aeneas. She asks Anna to build a pyre for her, piled high with all of Aeneas's stuff that he left behind. His weapons, his clothes, even the bed they shared. Although Dido already has in mind to use this pyre for her suicide, Anna thinks that this is for the spell that Dido had spoken of earlier, and Dido intentionally misleads her. That night, Dido performs an elaborate ritual and sacrifices, and delivers another speech of lament about having nothing left to live for, and about her guilt for breaking her vow to Sychaeus. While this is happening, Mercury visits Aeneas in a dream, and tells him that the Trojans have to be gone before morning. So they leave. At dawn, Dido looks out on the beach and sees that the Trojans are officially gone. She runs through every extreme measure she should have taken to keep him in Carthage, and then utters a curse, that the descendants of Aeneas and the descendants of the Carthaginians would forever be enemies. She tells her nurse Barque to go get Anna, and after Barque leaves, Dido climbs on top of the pyre, grabs Aeneas' fancy bedazzled sword, and delivers a final soliloquy. She addresses the pile of mementos, asking them to free her from her cares. She recounts her accomplishments, her city, and her walls, and she laments the day that the Trojans came to her shores. And this is where we pick up in the Latin. Dido is sitting on top of her pyre, in the middle of her death soliloquy, right before Anna rushes in and sees her. The repetition of sick, sick in Dido's final words could be intended to mimic the sound the sword makes as she stabs herself, or it could just be adding emphasis by repetition, referring only to the way in which she is dying. And with her last words, Dido curses Aeneas one final time. Her attendants discover her after the fact, and Anna rushes in, sees her sister half dead, and calls to her, her words referring back to a lot of the context not actually included in the Latin selections for this book. So when Anna says, was this that thing, and was this that pyre of yours, and I built with these hands, she is referring to the pyre that Dido had asked Anna herself to construct. Anna is justifiably upset with Dido for having deceived her, and for leading her into unknowingly having a hand in assisting in her sister's suicide. But she also expresses the desire to have killed herself alongside Dido, that they would both have died at the same time rather than having to endure a life separated from her sister. Anna rests Dido's head in her lap, and Dido tries several times to sit up, each time failing and falling back. The repetition of formulaic statements like this one, she tried to raise herself up three times and three times she fell, shows up in other places in the Aeneid as well. For example, when bringing the horse into Troy in Book 2, Aeneas recounts, it stopped on the threshold four times, and four times arms gave a sound. Or when Aeneas sees his wife's ghost while searching Troy for her, he tried to embrace her three times, and three times her spirit fled his grasp. The repetition here is meant to highlight Dido struggling in vain, but her struggle seems to be more than just an attempt to sit up, but rather a struggle for life and death itself because of the nature of her suicide. Virgil says three things about Dido's death, that it happened not by fate, not deserved, and before her time. In these statements, he seems to be implying that Dido's death was not predetermined, this has big ramifications for the conception of fate in the universe of this poem, that perhaps not all outcomes are destined, that maybe there was a way for Aeneas to have accomplished his ultimate destiny, which was decreed by fate, but to do so without the tragedy and brokenheartedness that resulted from the way he handled his breakup with Dido. 
There's not really a definite answer for this, but if it is the case that her death was not decreed by fate, and that some outcomes within the universe of the poem can be affected, then this brings some interesting what-ifs to mind. Some context for the underworld language used in this passage. Dis is another name for Pluto, god of the underworld. Stygian refers to the river Styx, one of the rivers in the underworld, and Orcus is the underworld itself. Proserpina was Pluto's not completely consensual bride and queen of the underworld. The story goes that she presided over the deaths of mortals, and one could not die until Proserpina had cut the fatal lock from the top of their head. And since Dido's death was apparently before her time and not fated, Proserpina had not done her job. So Juno takes pity on Dido's long-suffering and sends Iris, her own messenger god and counterpart to Mercury, to release Dido's spirit from her body. The imagery of Iris, goddess of the rainbow, flying down trailing a thousand colors behind her, is a somewhat more positive way to end this section, in spite of all of the tragedy that's happening. Dido is finally released from life, and this is where Book 4 ends. But at the start of Book 5, Aeneas looks back on Carthage in the distance and sees the glowing of flames. He doesn't know why there would be a fire, but he has a bad feeling about it. The ending of Book 4 might leave us with some unanswered questions. As soon as Aeneas leaves and Dido dies, we lose our omniscient perspective, and we are left not knowing what happened to the city or to those who survived Dido. But fear not, the poet Ovid comes to the rescue. In his Fasti, the six-book poem published in 8 AD and covering, of all topics, holidays on the Roman calendar, Ovid fills in what happens to Carthage after Dido's suicide and tells the rest of Anna's story. Ovid writes, Pitiful Dido had burned with fire for Aeneas, she had burned on the funeral pyre built up for her own fate, and her ashes were collected, and on the marble of her tomb was this brief verse which she herself left while dying. Aeneas supplied both the cause and sword of death. Dido fell by the use of her own hand. Immediately the Numidians invade the kingdom without a defender, and Marian Yarbus gains possession of her captive home, and remembering his rejection, he says, I, whom she spurned so often, am nevertheless enjoying Elissa's bedroom. The Tyrians scatter where wandering drives each of them, as sometimes uncertain bees wander having lost their king. Anna is driven from her home, and weeping left her sister's walls. From there, Ovid reports that Anna went into exile on the island of Malta, where she was sheltered by Battus, the king on the island who was a family friend from their Phoenician days. She stayed there for three years, but her brother Pygmalion came threatening war if Battus didn't hand Anna over. Anna fled into exile again, but she was caught in a storm and shipwrecked. She washed up on the coast of Latium, only to be discovered by none other than Aeneas himself, now married to Lavinia and settled in Italy. Aeneas offers Anna sanctuary and hospitality, but Anna's presence makes Lavinia more and more jealous. Dido's spirit appears to Anna in a dream, urging her to flee again, and while running away, she comes to the river Numicus, where she is swept away by the current and transformed into a nymph by the river god. She is renamed Anna Perenna, and the Italian people begin celebrating a festival in her honor, marking the completion of a full year. But all of that happens after the events of the Aeneid. Meanwhile, back in the poem, Aeneas lands in Sicily at the exact spot and exactly one year after he had buried his father Anchises. Book 5 takes a break from the action to host some funeral games and to hit the reset button on the last year they had spent in Carthage. Next time, we will be moving into Book 6, where Aeneas will see a lot of cool things happen around him, but he won't really do all that much. And there will be a few surprise cameos. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. 
Fama appears for the last time in Book 4 inside of this section. How has Fama's presence permeated Book 4 and driven the plot forward? Anna expresses shock at Dido's suicide. Is there any way she could have anticipated Dido's intentions? What is Virgil trying to convey by including Dido's final failed attempts to sit up? What implications are there to Virgil's statement that Dido's death was not by fate and before her time? Where in Caesar have we seen people resorting to suicide in helpless situations? How is their portrayal similar to and different from Dido's? How does the description of Iris provide a contrast to the tragedy experienced throughout the end of Book 4? Dido's death coincides with the end of Book 4. Is this a satisfying conclusion, or are you left with unanswered questions? Gratias ago pro auscultando, et gratias maximas uxori mei, quae voces didones et anae recitavit. Valete.